Our first scripture reading comes uh, from Genesis 35. I'll read verses 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he was called Israel. God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall spring from you. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give this land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Our next scripture reading is uh, from the uh, Gospel of John. This is uh, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to him. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they were rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. And our sermon text today is, uh, begins in Exodus 5. Uh, starting with verses 22 and going into 6.13. Then Moses turned again to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you mistreated this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has mistreated the people, and you have done nothing at all to deliver the pe- your people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, The Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them orders regarding the Israelites, and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. So uh, we are continuing uh, our series in Exodus. Uh, 
made it all the way to chapter 6. Uh, so last time, if you, we left Moses, uh, it was his first day on this job, this new job of uh, being called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And as we saw, that first day ended uh, a, a disaster. Moses twice tried to convince the Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to uh, worship uh, Yahweh in the wilderness. Uh, remember, he didn't even ask for complete freedom. He just asked for three days uh, that they could hold a festival and sacrifice to Yahweh. And twice, Pharaoh refused. Pharaoh responded by saying, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And so instead, Pharaoh increased the workload on the Israelites, hoping to drive a wedge between uh, the Israelites and Moses. And that plan worked really well. The Israelite leaders accused Moses' actions of putting a sword in the hand of the Egyptians to kill the Israelites. So it's understandable at this point that Moses is quite dejected. Uh, Moses's latest attempt to aid the Israelites is going no better than the last. And today's passage shows uh, him, uh, you know, begins with Moses uh, expressing his dejection to Yahweh and Yahweh's response. And so this is another place where the uh, chapter divisions in our Bible are really unfortunate. Uh, so that's why I, I chose to uh, look at the last few verses in uh, Exodus, because really uh, the next few uh, verses in uh, Exodus 6 are really Yahweh's response to Moses' uh, dejection. So let's look at first at uh, verse 22. Uh, in verse 22, we read that Moses confronts Yahweh and says, O Lord, why have you done evil to the people? Okay, so your translation probably tones that down a little bit, but in the Hebrew, that word is actually like the word for evil. Uh, it's a strong word, but that's exactly what Moses is accusing God of doing. And it's interesting here that Moses doesn't address God as Yahweh. So we read Lord, right? And usually Lord is the English translation of Yahweh. But if you'll notice in your Bible, uh, it's in small caps, right? So if you look in your Bible, you'll probably see in your translation, it's in small caps. Usually when the Lord is a translation of Yahweh, it's in uppercase letters, but it should be in small letter, or lowercase letters uh, in your translation. And that's because it's not the word Yahweh. It's actually another Hebrew word, uh, Adonai. Uh, so Lord is a perfectly acceptable translation of Adonai, but Adonai doesn't necessarily refer, refer to a divine being. Uh, uh, Adonai is anyone of authority. Um, and so it's a much more generic term uh, uh, than even like uh, Elohim or, uh, or definitely certainly more than Yahweh. Uh, and so in other words, what we're seeing here is a breakdown in the relationship between Moses and Yahweh. Uh, and you'll notice Moses uh, blames Yahweh for the misfortune of the Israelites. He says it's Yahweh, or well, in this case, Adonai, Lord, who has brought evil on the people. Now, really, who's brought evil on the people? Who's the one that's enslaved them and making them make bricks? It's actually Pharaoh, but Moses here is blaming Yahweh. And then in verse 23, when he finally does mention Pharaoh, who is actually the one doing all these bad things, Moses uses the same word again, evil, 
Uh, in other words, Moses is making Yahweh equivalent to Pharaoh and that they both participate in doing evil to, to the Israelites. Uh, so you can see how upset Moses is. And in fact, when you read it, uh, the whole passage is very choppy. It's very emotional. Uh, and yet God responds patiently to this. God's, God knows Moses' call isn't easy. And, and God had actually warned Moses as much earlier. But instead of getting upset, uh, you know, God, uh, again, uh, answers Moses uh, calmly and patiently. Uh, and, you know, really, this is one of many examples we find in the Bible of, of God basically inviting this honest discussion and even allowing angry complaint. You know, we don't like it. You know, our religious sensibilities and our piety is usually like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Like, it's something dangerous. But, like, there's a whole genre of the Psalms that is exactly this. In fact, uh, you know, it depends on how you want to count them. But, uh, you know, we, we've talked about the lament Psalms before. And many of the lament Psalms are just basically people, like, upset uh, at, at, like, how stuff is going down in the world and how, you know, they don't see God doing anything about them. And it's something like, uh, you know, at least 50% of the Psalms, uh, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but it's really devoted. And I think that's one uh, area where I think we as the church have to come to grips uh, with this. This is, uh, you know, an, an, an age-old practice that Moses is engaging in here. Um, and we're scared to do it. And I think a lot of times it's because, like, you know, we think that following God or, or being a Christian means we have to be 100% of the time being happy. And uh, that, is, that is certainly not the view that we have of uh, how God is followed in the Old Testament or the New. Um, this uh, was not the case for the Israelites, and they preserved many of their writings. Uh, you know, this angry complaint of the fact that the world kind of sucks a lot of times. And so, you know, rather than running from that, I think we need to acknowledge and preserve and to, to make that part of our tradition, because it certainly was for theirs. Um, now... Yahweh's response here is to reassure Moses that he will indeed compel Pharaoh to send the people out of Egypt. And notice again, there is an emphasis not on the people being freed from Egypt, but that Pharaoh himself would be the one sending the Israelites out. Yeah, uh, we talked to a little bit about this the, in the last sermon, and we're going to talk about it more. But there seems to be this big emphasis in Exodus about the necessity of Pharaoh being the one who releases the Israelites. That seems to be a major point that Exodus is trying to make. And, and I'm not actually going to get into that today because I have other stuff to talk about. But I want to note it and set it up because we're eventually going to return to this. You know, because the good thing is there's plenty of Exodus left. So hope you all aren't getting bored. We're only in chapter 6. There's 40 chapters. There's uh, plenty of time. Uh, and at some point, I do want to talk about this issue because, like I said, I think it's pretty important to the, the uh, thinking of Exodus. Now, Yahweh goes on to remind Moses that he does intend to free the Israelites because he had made a covenant with their fathers. And of course, we, we talk lots about covenants here, but covenants were like super important. They were binding agreements. And in this case, uh, the agreement was that Yahweh had pledged himself as the king and protector of the Israelites. He had said, this is my job. And uh, he was obligated uh, by the terms of the covenant to rescue his people. 
Uh, that's what being their, their, uh, their king was all about. If some other country or some other nation or empire were to uh, attack these people, that's what you did as part of your covenant. And, you know, this statement in verse 5 that Yahweh heard and remembered the covenant are probably best, like, we kind of hear that and we're like, oh, he listened, you know, and like he recalled. But that's really more legal language, okay? So if you spend a lot of time reading ancient Near Eastern covenants which I do, uh, those are the kind of words that you'll see. That's the kind of terminology uh, that's used. So, you know, this was, these were, were, were more uh, like a, uh, had like more official definitions that may come across, uh, you know, when you read it without realizing, you know, how important these were as legal documents. And so here, Yahweh declares that he acknowledges his obligations as Israel king, as Israel's king, and he's going to act according to what he had promised Abraham, so way back in Genesis 15, because if we want to understand Exodus, Caden, what do we need to do? Understand Ephesians. Understand Ephesians or Genesis, Genesis more appropriately. And so you remember, you know, there was this whole scene where God like split these animals in half and he uh, made this covenant with Abraham and said, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff with you. And if I don't fulfill it, I'm going to be like these animals that, that, that I cut in half. And that's how serious I am about my obligations to this covenant. And all of that's like super strange and mystical and it's kind of gross and it's pretty barbaric and that's okay. But it was like really super meaningful to these people at this time, this, this culture this is what spoke to them. And I think, you know, it's another example of like, you know, did God need to do something like cut animals and have to make his point? Well, no, he didn't. But I think this is another example of how much, you know, the links that God goes to, to condescend and meet and communicate with us. Um, and, and so, you know, when we read something like Moses, like basically getting upset and being like, God, you're just as bad as Pharaoh, like making a, you know, evil on us. And God just being like, yeah, well, uh, you know, let's talk about that. Like we need to realize, yeah, that's just part of what being in a relationship with God is like. And like I said, it's again, it's, it's something we neglect. And I think it would be a lot healthier if we didn't do so. Um, now, uh, as, as, as Yahweh responds, um, there's a series of, uh, of future tense verbs here. There's seven of them to be, surpri- uh, to be precise. And you'll remember at the end of chapter two, we talked about uh, chapter two in Exodus ends with these four verbs that are like super important. In fact, they become part of the Seder ritual. That's why there's four you know, cups of wine at the Seder ritual because they represent these four verbs. Uh, Yahweh hears, remembers, sees, and knows. And here we have, uh, again, kind of a continuation of this promise. Now God promises to bring out, to deliver, to redeem, to take for his people, to be God, to bring to the land that was sworn to their fathers. And so, uh, you know, just as before, what I want to emphasize here is that this revelation of God is not just like, hey, I'm God, I'm cool, and I'm really strong, and I'm really good, and I made everything. It's much more than that. This is a really active revelation. It is uh, Yahweh promising, and what Yahweh promising it promises is more than just release from oppression or even freedom. Uh, what he is ultimately offering here is a relationship. And look at verse 7, because this is super important. Uh, verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. 
And that statement there, which is going to be repeated a lot in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, this is really the heart of the theology of the, the Hebrew Scriptures. If you want to know really what the Old Testament's about, what story it's about, it's this. It's this relationship in which the people give themselves to God and God gives themselves to them. And that's what the covenant is trying to point toward. So the covenant is just an instrument. It's just a tool that really is trying to communicate the importance of this relationship that's being formed between God and uh, between, between us and God. In uh, this speech, Yahweh wants to make sure that Moses does not lose sight of this big picture. Because, like I said, it's this relationship between Yahweh and humanity that's the purpose of the covenant and the exodus. Um, now, as part of this relationship, as part of uh, the explaining what's going on here, and, you know, why Moses needs to, you know, not be discouraged and, and why Moses de- needs to see Yahweh is different from Pharaoh and not evil. Uh, God discusses his name. In 6.3, God says that he appeared to their ancestors as El Shaddai. Uh, and, but that name Yahweh was not known to them. Now, that's really interesting because if we go back to Genesis, the name Yahweh actually shows up like quite a bit. Uh, actually, 163 times, if you want to be precise. Uh, El Shaddai only appears five times in Genesis. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's, it, it, it's quite interesting, this statement here, that they knew him as El Shaddai, but not Yahweh. Um, so, so we need to talk about this a bit, because this is one of these things that scholars write a lot about. So first of all, let's talk about El Shaddai. It's actually quite a mysterious name. Uh, you know, your Bible, if you were reading along, probably translates it as God Almighty. That's, that's usually how it gets translated. Um, and we're not, we don't really think that that's probably a great translation. But we also don't really have a good translation for it. So, so even Amy Grant doesn't know what it means. So for, for those of you who grew up in the 80s... <laughs> All right. So what we can tell, I'm glad that joke landed. I kind of wondered if I would put it in there. Okay. But uh, from what we can tell, um, you know, there's lots of different ways to try to figure out the meanings of these words. But when we read Genesis and we look at where El Shaddai is actually used, how it's actually employed in the grammar, it seems to have to do with fertility. It almost always, it it pretty much always occurs with this promise of children or descendants, okay? Um, And so this question then, is Yahweh a new name that was first revealed to Moses at the burning bush? And then... uh, so, so, so that's, that's the question that's going on here, you know. Okay, we've got Yahweh used a bunch of Genesis, but now we're hearing like, okay, well, you know, your, your ancestors actually didn't know me as that name. So, so there's two possibilities that are going on here. One is that the writers of Genesis must have updated the text uh, with the name Yahweh, and they did so anachronistically, okay? So anachro- it's an anachronism. Like, they really didn't use the word Yahweh but it was uh, later updated. Now that's possible, but it seems unlikely because that's just usually not how these biblical writers uh, worked. They actually liked to preserve old traditions, even when those old predictions were particularly contradictory or embarrassing. And, And like names of God is like super important. They really didn't like to mess with those. There's a few other reasons I won't get into because this sermon would get really pedantic and long. 
But I don't think that that's probably what's going on. What I think it, it, what this text is saying to us is that the, answer, that, that, that the ancestors of the Israelites, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, didn't know uh, God as Yahweh is a fact. Uh, they, did not, they did not know God on an ex, or the name Yahweh on an experiential level. Because remember that the Hebrew idea of the word know uh, which is, uh, yeah, it, that's, uh, you remember, Chris, it's your favorite, your favorite Hebrew verb. Yada. Yada. Yeah, yada is to know, right? Yada. Okay. I have no idea if that phrase yada, yada, yada comes from that. Maybe. I don't know. Someone, someone, some, oh yeah. Oh, really? Okay. So it does. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm really always interested in these things, but I think what God is saying here is that this generation of Israelites who are held captive in Egypt is about to understand and experience God in the form of Yahweh and who Yahweh is in a much greater way than their ancestors did. So I think it's knowing Yahweh not so much as like, oh, there's a fact that this God has this name Yahweh, but knowing what Yahweh means, what it means to be Yahweh and what it means to experience. So you know, kind of to sum up here, this passage we have uh, with God declaring that Yahweh has heard the Israelites. He's acknowledged the covenant that Yahweh has made with them, and he's discussed his name. Now, if that sounds really similar to things you've heard before in Exodus, that's because it is, okay? This is almost like, a, 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 like another summary. It, it's very similar to material that we've already covered starting at the end of chapter 2, and going through chapter 3. Uh, it's basically a restatement of many of the ideas uh, that uh, God uh, revealed at the burning bush. Now, however, since you are all perspicacious readers of biblical literature, okay, perspicacious, it's a good SAT word right there, all right, uh, you know what to do when we have repeated language like this, right? Because when we have repeated stories or repeated language or repeated scene, we know what we're supposed to do, that this was a common Hebrew literary device. And when we come across similarities, that's meant to reinforce those ideas, okay? And then when we read differences, it's meant the, the differences are something we need to pay attention to. They've been highlighted. They're, they're like, okay, this is what you need to know about this passage. Like, this is going beyond what we've learned before. Um, so, of course, you know, the parts that are repeated here, this idea about the covenant, the promises, about uh, God experiencing the suffering of the Israelites. The big difference, though, is this idea about the name, okay? Uh, you know, we've already uh, mentioned uh, uh, Moses, and the question of Moses' identity several times. You know, this has been a major theme of Exodus, who Moses is. You know, Moses' uh, uh, identity is ambiguous. Uh, he is born Hebrew, but he's raised in the Egyptian courts. He's rejected by his own people. He flees to Midian, where he is considered an Egyptian, but he marries a Midianite woman, and he lives and works alongside her family. And so this whole question of Moses' identity is always kind of in flux. It's always like there's always a question. And ultimately, we saw it was resolved just recently with that whole crazy story about the circumcision scene, which, you know, we'll, we won't go into that again. Uh, but I think that what's going on here in chapter 6 with this talk about Yahweh's name again 
is it's highlighting uh, uh, this to, to, to bring up this statement about their forefathers and El Shaddai. All of this is being um, highlighted to uh, ask us about this question of the identity of Yahweh. Who is God? Who is this God that the Israelites are serving, who is Yahweh. Now, we previously focused on Moses' identity, and now what we're doing is we're shifting focus onto God's identity. And it's the question that Pharaoh asked at the beginning of chapter 5, okay, that we covered in our sermon from Exodus a couple weeks ago. So if you go back to chapter 5, 2, uh, it's, uh, the, the verse says, uh, But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And so our passage today is really an answer to Pharaoh's question because it's not just Pharaoh who is going to learn about who Yahweh is, but Israel and Moses as well. It's, it, it's the question here because if we're going to be in a relationship with someone, we need to know about that person, right? Um, so if we backtrack a bit to last week, uh, in chapter five or two weeks ago, we have this scene where Moses confronts Pharaoh. And in verse one, Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. So Pharaoh rejects that. And then Moses follows up in verse three, the God, okay, so he uses a different term here. This is Elohim of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Now, it's easy to read these two attempts of Moses uh, to secure freedom from the Israelites and, and to see them as roughly the same. But if you kind of look back and closely inspect upon them, they're, they're actually quite different. Uh, Moses' first attempt uses this name Yahweh. And Moses asked that the people go to the wilderness for a uh, celebratory feast. In other words, they want to go have a party, right? With lots of food. That's what the first does. And then after Pharaoh refuses, Moses tries again. And the request is a bit different. In the second attempt, Moses begins with this more generic term, Elohim. And he tells Pharaoh the Israelites need to make sacrifices to God. so, So not a feast. They need to go sacrifice to God. And if they don't do that, God is going to afflict them with pestilence and with the sword. Okay, so, you know, it's like we're going to be punished if we don't make the appropriate sacrifices. So these are really two very different views of God here. And according to Moses, you know, one wants the Israelites to throw a party with lots of food, and the other man demands to be appeased with sacrifices or else he kills his people. So, let's think back all that we've talked about so far about the names of God. So if you've been keeping score at home, right, uh, we've discussed four different names of God in this sermon already, right? Four. So Adonai, which is what Moses uses when he complains to God, and it's just this generic term for an authority figure, you know, be it human or divine. Elohim, you know, which is, you know, we've talked about before, it's kind of like a title and it refers to any being from the divine realm. And usually that being has some command over some aspect of nature, okay? And Elohim could be a sun god or, you know, a river god or a storm god or something. And then we have El Shaddai, uh, which, you know, we, we, we've, we've talked to Amy Grant, we're not really sure, but it seems to have something to do with fertility. And then finally, we have Yahweh, 
you know, that name that was given in the burning bush. Now, again, the question this passage is trying to have us think about is the question of God's identity. Is God simply the deity who is in charge, as Adonai would suggest? Is God a power that means to be coerced and appeased, like Elohim would suggest? You've got to give him sacrifices or he does bad things to you. Is God a, simply a fertility God, as El Shaddai would suggest? Now, to a degree, there's some truth to all of these. However, they're only partial disclosures, and that's what Exodus 6 is trying to get at. What God wants Moses and the Israelites and Pharaoh and ultimately us to understand is that God is most completely and fully revealed as this name Yahweh. Now, if you think back to the sermon where we talked about this, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, this name Yahweh, uh, I made three points. So, you know, I'm sure that you all remember all these points and, you know, you have detailed notes and uh, everything. But, you know, just to review, okay, Yahweh is best translated as he will be, okay? Uh, Yahweh is about the future, Okay, that's why it's important that it's he will be. Now, usually it says like he is or I am or something like that. Probably not a best translation. It's this future oriented idea. Second, the explanation that is given to Moses for the name Yahweh is designed specifically to uh, communicate indefiniteness, mystery, openness. Uh, And third, the naming formula is not uh, so much about communicating Yahweh's character, but rather what Yahweh will do, okay? And all of that means is that Yahweh is not known as a fact or proposition, okay? You know, Chris and I are real big on this point. You'll hear us say this stuff all the time because we think that that is a modern idea that is being opposed on the text and is actually pretty foreign to the concept of how people thought back then. And that if we really want to understand what the Bible is trying to tell us, uh, we, we've got to get away from that idea that, that knowing God or knowing Yahweh or knowing Jesus is just about knowing some things about uh, them and you know, getting the true false test right. Uh, and, and, and that's what Yahweh is trying to get across here by this name, because rather Yahweh is not known, uh, is known by how Yahweh acts in the future. And those future actions are not mechanistic or predictable. They're mysterious, they're uncertain, and they're based uh, on God intervening in our lives and in front of us. So there's a relationship involved. Yahweh is known by experience. Yahweh is in relationship and Yahweh acts in the world in the way that Yahweh chooses. So it's always surprising, okay? It's always different. Uh, it, it, you know, you can't, you, you can't put Yahweh in a box, okay? That's, you know, another way of thinking about this. Uh, because it is future-oriented and active, it requires this relationship. And that relationship is based on trusting that Yahweh has a plan, has the power to carry out that plan, and that Yahweh's plan will result in life, abundance, and flourishing in the world because Yahweh created the world for that purpose. Now, we have a great word uh, to sum up what that relationship means, okay? It's called faith. (laughs) That's what faith is. It's faith that, you know, Yahweh has this plan, uh, that Yahweh's plan is good, that he desires, and that we want to be a part of that plan and see how that plan works out and, you know, are prepared to uh, uh, participate in this, uh, you know, no matter what twists and turns it can take. And that's why faith is so important in the Bible, because it establishes that relationship. 
Now, if we put all this together, again, we want to understand Exodus. We need to think in terms of Genesis. In Genesis, the great obstacle that had to be overcome was usually barrenness. Okay, uh, you know, this was the, the recurring theme of the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet God, acting in this capacity as El Shaddai, overcomes these obstacles to the point where the uh, uh, descendants of the Israelites are so numerous that the Egyptians want to enslave them to contain them. Now, what we learn here about the identity of Yahweh is these is told in these seven future-oriented verbs because it's always about the future. It's about the relationship. It's not about the past. It's not that, that Yahweh is not a static, okay, uh, deity. Uh, Yahweh is active and in the world. Look at verse six. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from uh, the slavery to, the, to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out of the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Notice how it's bracketed by this idea, you know, by this phrase, I am Yahweh. And so to know a Yahweh then is to know a God who is a savior who leads his people out of oppression, out of exploitation and death. It's a, it is a salvation that is based on a relationship with God, one that leads to a future place, a place of abundance, of flourishing, and where life is possible. That is who Yahweh is. That is what's being revealed in chapter 6. That is what Moses needs to know. That's what Israelites need to know. That's what we need to know. Their forefathers only experienced this to a limited degree. They only experienced part of what it meant to be God. But now their descendants are going to know a, more, more, a fuller and more glorious revelation of who Yahweh is. However, here's the good news for us. Okay, so, you know, us who don't, you know, cut up animals in, in, in covenants. You know, we can experience this fullness and glorious revelation of Yahweh in Jesus Christ. Because what the Bible tells us is that Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of who God is. That's why it's so important, you know, that we meditate and think about Jesus, that we, we, that we, that we read the Gospels and see and know Yahweh. Because it's more than just getting it right on the true false test. It's more than just knowing, like, Jesus did some cool stuff, that he did this miracle, and, like, it was awesome. So... If we look at this passage from John, you know, we have this weird story of Jesus walking on the water to meet the disciples who were caught in a storm. And Jesus says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And what you have to understand here is that this term, it is I, in Greek, it's like, you know, it's uh, ego ami. That's the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14. Okay, now, you know, it's not future tense. It says I am, you know, because Greek isn't good enough to really, you know, contain the uh, amazing, wonderful conceptions of the Hebrew language, right? But, <laughs> you know, uh, it is taken this idea about uh, I am and do not be afraid. This is what happens, you know, when God makes an appearance, right? 
uh, and in fact, the, 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 like, uh, notice that is the, the statement, you know, I will, don't be afraid, is like what almost always happens or is said when God appears. So here, Jesus is demonstrating to the disciples who he really is, that he's Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh who overcomes the waters and the storms. And remember that the ancient world, waters and storms are pictures of chaos. They are not mere natural phenomena, but they represent the dark forces of the world. And chaos is the enemy of flourishing, abundance, and life. And here Jesus is demonstrating his superiority over these powers and how he saves his people from them. He conquers them. He takes his people home. That's exactly what Exodus 6 is about. And again, we have another picture of what Yahweh desires for his people. And what that tells us is that salvation does not end at the Exodus. It's only the beginning of Yahweh's revelation of himself as a savior. Ultimately, Jesus is going to conquer all the dark forces of the world and the ultimate enemy of bondage, death itself on the cross. It's not just about being out of slavery. It's not just about getting on shore. It's more than that. Uh, all of those are a picture that point toward this ultimate, uh, you know, ultimate salvation that uh, frees the creation, God's good creation that's been in bondage to sin to death all its long. And that means we can now experience Yahweh by placing our faith in Yahweh, knowing that Yahweh isn't just a powerful force. Yahweh is not a God that we must perform the correct rituals for and follow the prescribed rules or face consequences. Nor is Yahweh a mere dispenser of blessing, uh, of blessings, um, whose uh, you know good side it would best to be on. Yahweh is much more than that. Yahweh has a deep desire to know and love you because Yahweh created you, and Yahweh has a deep desire to remake this world in goodness and abundance because that's what Yahweh intended it for. Yahweh has a plan. And uh, to do this plan that is ancient and it's ongoing and has now entered its final phase in Jesus Christ, we are called to be a part of that plan because we are his people who he created to act in his creation. That's what being in the image of God means. We have a role and he wants us to be part of that, this. And we can all be part of this work by having faith in his character and his plan. Jesus' victory in the cross was the beginning of this final chapter in Yahweh's grand cosmic story of salvation. And we can participate knowing that the uh, forces of the chaotic waters have been overthrown, that the pharaohs of this world have been defeated, that the empire of the Caesars will fade. Power and force, as great as they may appear, are of the past. They are gone. The future of this world is love. And despite all the difficulties and despite all the setbacks, we can have faith. We can have faith that the future, uh, uh, that our work can have meaning and purpose because God has been revealed most fully in Christ.